0: common extremely prognosis not favorable stay tuned as we discuss and return to our famous google pt series where we discuss ankle sprains
1: welcome to therapist in motion
2: podcast brought to you by spooner
0: Welcome back to Therapist in Motion Podcast. This is Dan hosting today, and I am joined by two amazing colleagues. Uh, K2 joins us once again. Hello. And uh, a first-time pod guest, but a long-time listener, a long-time debater in the background, Mr. John Klein. Hi, guys. So today, as uh, you kind of heard in the intro, we're going to go back to our Google PT series, but... Before I do that, I just want to take a brief moment to highlight something very exciting that is coming to Phoenix on March 18th and 19th. Here, uh, hosted by Spooner, is our first annual sports medicine conference called The Huddle. Uh, this, this conference is going to be uh, new, different, and unique, where we are going to have a series of main stage presentations by physicians, both conservative management and surgeons, and physical therapists, which will be followed by rotations where we will go in more depth for the athletic trainer, the strength and conditioning specialist, the physical therapist, the physical therapist assistant, where you will learn some additional practical components to take back to your clinical setting the following week. Uh, We have some phenomenal speakers coming, internationally renowned physicians, sports medicine providers, physical therapists, our own K2, and it's just something that I would encourage all of our listeners to put on their roadmap for Con Ed. I know it's not that far away, but what greater place to come in March than Phoenix, Arizona? If you want more information, you can find more information on SpoonerPT.com slash the huddle. Now let's get into the nitty gritty. So today in combination with our Google PT series, we are going to utilize a review that was published in December of 2020 from the world journal of orthopedics. And the title of the, of this review is acute ankle sprain in athletes, clinical aspects and algorithmic approach. So Uh, Also, this link will be in the description for you guys to go find the free text PDF article of this review. So, John and K2, I'm going to toss it to you guys first and just kind of give me your overall impressions of this review article
2: and really what stood out to you. You know what, Dan, uh, as hooked as I was after that intro that you gave, I was also hooked uh, the very first sentence of this review (laughs) Um, (laughs) with acute ankle sprains being the most common injury in athletes um, I didn't realize that there was a forty to fifty percent uh, rate of experiencing symptoms and re- uh, injury recurrence after this this injury. So uh, I guess my question is why, and hopefully we can talk through some of that.
1: Yeah, about this article is a great thing about almost like giving us checklist in a way, and probably lots of information we read on this article is not necessarily new, uh, but it kind of remind us what research is out there. So that I feel like biggest takeaway, you know, uh, um, I got was more like finding that sweet spot, finding happy medium. So don't don't go to too extreme.
0: Yeah, I think that, that you both were spot on with some things that caught my eye as well. And I think where we're going to focus a lot of our attention is on the algorithm that, that the authors kind of, through their review, pulled together. And I think it's a great graphical representation as well as clinical thought process that we go through. But oftentimes there's questions that I think we're going to expose today that we that we run into as clinicians treating individuals with acute ankle sprains on how do we know when to progress, when to prescribe certain things at home, when to be guided by pain, when to not be guided by pain, when to be guided by swelling, when not to be guided by swelling. And, and so that, that's kind of where I want to focus our attention is really on that, on the algorithmic thinking and not necessarily the top half because the top half does a fantastic job of reminding us of the Ottawa ankle rules and when we should be seeking out for our patients to pursue additional imaging and when we can you know manage them in the clinic without fear of a fracture. So I kind of want to start first with what you guys both saw in the article, as well as what you've done in your clinical practice. When a patient comes in with an acute ankle sprain with positive pain and swelling, as well as limited range of motion, what are kind of your guys' strategies and approach to those people that fits into this algorithm, as well as questions from this algorithm that you're like, I think we need to dig deeper into this?
2: Uh, what I really liked about this um, review is they were they were very certain to make sure we knew like we should not be mobile immobilizing people too much we should not be delaying weight bearing too quickly um, and even in this very far left uh, column where you have pain and swelling it still says weight bearing is tolerated and that's where I like to start because I want to make sure that somebody is again getting proprioceptors turned on um, they're not just elevating icing staying off it for the you know first two weeks, but let's get them up and let's uh, weight bear at least according to their pain
1: to get them going. Yeah, um, one of the takeaway message I got is like, if you go too conservative, you lose a lot. And if you get nearsighted, you lose a lot. I believe uh, body is a collection of uh, multiple systems. So if we just take a look at one thing, for example, trying to provide the stability, maybe we lose so much from everything else, such as uh, decreased fluid mobility around the area, or decreased proprioceptive input to the, those area, and maybe necessary loading to that injured site for the proper healing, or uh, lots of great you know uh, impulse, inputs, neural um, inputs to those areas. So, um, just looking at one thing, just trying to protect one thing, we may actually lose so much. So biggest takeaway uh, take message was stepping back to see whole system.
0: I think that's great because I would agree that if I look back on my career and looking at where I've my treatment approach has fit into this algorithm, I would probably agree K2. I was probably too conservative early on with a lot of people. I would focus on rice, you know, or price, you know, the protective component. I wasn't overly aggressive with bracing, but I was still fairly conservative, especially if they had significant compensations. Maybe not non-weight-bearing, but really cautious with that weight-bearing is tolerated. But I was probably too conservative. And I think that that's probably what spurned me to want to talk about this is you know, when I was Googling PT exercises Frankel sprains, as well as what was in this article is it's a lot of things that I would say a lot of people utilize. And I don't necessarily think that they're bad, but how are we utilizing that, those exercises as well as pain and swelling as a guide, like this algorithm points out of when to progress? So... I want to know from you guys is how do you utilize let's start with pain how do you utilize pain as your guide on how to be conservative and or aggressive getting both range of motion and gait mechanics back in your patient
2: so I I do use pain as a guide um but I, I actually use it as a guide <laughs> so like for example there's a line in this uh, review that says early weight bearing um is is uh You want early weight bearing, but you want to minimize inversion and eversion in the early stages. So my question is, well, if there's no pain, are you still minimizing eversion and inversion? Because I'm going to use pain as my guide and say, okay, why don't we go through eversion? Why don't we start trying to take that ankle through the motion of inversion? Even if we don't hit an inverted position, why don't we start getting proprioceptors and muscles to fire in weight bearing in those early stages if there's no pain?
1: Pain, such a big uh, kind of topic, but definitely like we sometimes, uh, talking about myself, in the past, I was so focused on the pain because patients come with reporting of pain, talking of pain, 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 but definitely we need to ask proper questions about pain so that we understand what is driving the pain and understanding about the nature, so that is a acuteness of the symptom, maybe we can get that, but Again, if we uh, just get trapped by pain, we lose so much. So biggest question for me is, is the pain limiting the clients to progress? Uh, in other words, pain is maybe driving force for the compensation.
0: So as we were doing some show prep, that was kind of uh, something that John and I were discussing before K2 showed up is, where and how do we focus our attention on pain? And, and K2 and his brilliance said, well, does the pain cause compensation? And if the pain causes compensation, then I'm going to pay attention to the pain. If the pain doesn't cause compensation, maybe I'm going to allow that patient to work through their pain because it's not leading to compensation. And as K2 so eloquently stated again in the, in the pre-show prep was so many of people that we work with quote unquote play through pain and they don't have significant compensation. So I think that that's brilliant. Because what I had said was how I address somebody that comes in with pain is I go back to my athletic training background where I will utilize the famous slush bucket or ice and water in a trash can. And I'm going to submerge that foot ankle in the cold water until they don't feel any symptoms. And then I'm going to get them out and I'm going to take them through a series of functional and non-functional exercises for both range of motion and Strengthen and proprioception. And then when they start to feel, I'm going to put them back in the bucket. And as John and I were kind of talking about that, he was like, well, but how much are you changing their firing systems when they don't have any sensation? And I honestly said, I don't know. That's definitely something that I think we should discuss. So let's go down that path a little bit, not specific to the article, but still, if we look at the algorithm, it talks about again, pain and swelling as being components. So let's talk about what happens when we submerge somebody and take away their pain receptors, what can and or does that allow us to see in that patient that may allow to more success or altered success?
2: Well, yeah, so that that was my question because uh, again, if you're gonna use pain as a guide, but you're going to to numb the ankle so they don't have pain, well, then you're still going to do the same exercises that will potentially be non-painful when they would have been painful before. So why use pain as a guide then (laughs) if you're just going to numb it out, right? right? Um, And I think, you know, thinking about pain during versus pain after is another thing you could think about. Um, And my my question actually to K2 is going to be, I've had people explain it as green light, yellow light, red light. Um, If somebody reports their pain zero to three, it's a green light, you're good to go. If somebody reports are paying five to six, four to five to six, it's yellow light. You might want to you know hold back, and then seven or higher is a red light. Have you ever used that, or what do you think about that?
1: Um, again, probably in the past I used pain as a one of the uh, deciding factors, but now when I realize you know what I do is pain is just one of the deciding factors. So definitely I pay close attention to the pain. At the same time, um, I'm going to see if that clients has a uh, compensation because of that if the client has lingering effect after that if the clients get the uh, exacerbation after that all the components you know plays in role so definitely use as uh, one of the big uh, factor but i put all the uh, components the layers then make a decision
2: so what about a patient so what if, what if the research says it's okay to go through some pain um, but you don't get the patient to come back because you increase the pain and it hurts. Uh, you know. How do you take that into mind?
1: Okay, so that is if you know that your approach may create the pain, I'm going to set up the expectation first. Oh. So that this is what we're going to do. Then uh, reason ABC, we're going to do this. Then the benefit is this. But you know, You're going to experience that pain slash soreness, you know, maybe 24 hours after that. But that is expected. That is okay. But in return, we're going to actually achieve X, Y, Z, those kind of stuff. Then when they experience that pain slash soreness, they were like, yeah, this is what they're talking about. Then when they come back, that is no surprise.
2: Sounds like you're communicating the why and the how to your patient what you're going to do. (laughs) All right. So I think
0: we've, we, we've talked a little bit about pain. And I think part of my thought process, again, on taking away some of the pain is, does that allow me to get more motion, especially if they have limited motion? And I like what you said, John, about going through movements, but not necessarily getting to positions, right? And I think that there's a lot of wisdom there of I may be able to take somebody through An inversion moment, but they may not get into full inversion or be inverted, right? That could potentially stress the healing ligaments. Now, on the flip side, I would say at a certain point, we have to stress the healing ligaments, but I think that I feel comfortable stressing the healing ligaments when pain is a lot lower, potentially that zero to three scale. So I think we've done a good job kind of giving some thought to the pain component. Now let's talk a little bit about the swelling component because, again, if we look at this algorithm and we look at the left-hand side or, or the, the, the the far left, the most conservative component, they have swelling. And so how are we addressing the swelling component related to our exercise prescription of both functional weight-bearing and non-functional weight bearing and non functional muscle firing and range of motion and maybe intrinsic firing components.
2: How long would you say a grade two ankle sprain is going to take to have zero swelling?
0: Ah, that could take a long time. I mean, it could take weeks,
2: maybe even a couple months. So according to this algorithm, you would not start the second or third phase until their swelling is completely gone.
0: Right, that's what this algorithm would tell us. But is that what we do in clinical practice? Or is there a certain period of time when the swelling doesn't change with exercise that now we say that has turned to a negative because the swelling doesn't change with gravity or loading or non-weight bearing exercises to now that's a negative and now I can progress to now they just have limited motion and it's not necessarily impacted by the swelling.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would do my figure eight uh, swelling for the ankle. To make sure it's not fluctuating or it's at least steadily improving as I'm progressing something through a rehab protocol.
0: Yeah, I think that that's, you know, I mean, if we look at other surgically intervened conditions, total knee arthroplasty, for instance, we know that those patients are swollen for a long time, but yet they can still make functional progressions. They may not get full muscle activation back because of that swelling, but that doesn't mean that they can't get a lot of muscle activation going. So I think that what you're talking about, in K2, you alluded to it a little bit in show prep as well, of, of is the swelling changing is really what should be the guiding principle. So utilizing something, again, evidence-based practice or evidence-informed practice from a figure eight swelling of monitoring that from beginning at regular intervals, if the swelling isn't changing and their symptom of pain is going down, now, can we start to really go after the limited motion because those two things aren't getting worse with the interventions that we're prescribing?
1: Great point. And uh, if we are talking about um, swelling as a criteria, it's not like, are there swelling? Yes and no. Black and white. Maybe things are not that clear cut sometimes. Uh, just like you guys are talking about. Once the symptom goes to the chronic stage, sometimes swelling just sits there. So, But the activity slash exercise can be a factor for that swelling to go up, go down. Maybe stepping back, doing exercise, same swelling. Maybe progressing some exercise, same swelling. Maybe it wasn't a factor. And again, stepping back and see how much longer are are we willing to wait for that swelling to go completely down. Then how much we're gonna actually lose, especially the opportunity to load, the, you know, those injured tissue to heal better? That kind of question, you know, I write to myself.
2: Not to mention how much quicker potentially can you get some of that swelling to resolve if you do some of these things that you're not technically supposed to do with the yellow and the green, like the aerobic conditioning, putting someone on a bike. It says you're not supposed to do that if you have any swelling, but wouldn't that be beneficial?
0: Right, and and even you know, John, one of the things that they showed for the exercises is doing some isometrics to the hip. Okay. Well, him and I were talking, if the hip isn't impaired, do we need to do isometrics or can we go to concentric and eccentric exercises at the hip and maybe a different position like half kneeling that takes the ankle out of the equation, but you can still challenge the hip and now potentially stimulate the lymphatic system proximally to assist with Removing some of that distal swelling by a lot of different means, you know, manual mobilization, compression, taping, bracing, not necessarily to limit motion, but to more assist with swelling management by stimulating the rest of their system. Right. Um, Another thing I kind of want to. So that's kind of where my head goes with with that. Right. And, And again, utilizing some information and some exercises from this text combined with what you'll find on Google which would be a lot of open chain exercises. So I want to go that way next with, again, it's, it was both in the literature and it's what's on Google, is some of the open chain and some of the early phased closed chain exercises. Your guys' thoughts and utilization and, more importantly, the education to what you want your patients doing outside of therapy and how you're utilizing the combination of those exercises.
2: K2, do you do the uh, four-way ankle theraband exercise?
1: I don't. How can I say? Um, (laughs) I I utilize it, but I know when to use it. When it's like over utilizing it. So that when I see the functional spectrum, maybe if that is the only success they have, I may utilize it because I want to address their success to expand their success. But down the road, when they're trying to go back in the play, then they can do more, lots of cross-chain stuff, and I keep using all the time, rest of their life. Maybe that's not it.
2: <laughs> sure, um, I've never seen somebody sprain their ankle with their foot in the air, but maybe, maybe I just haven't been watching, you know, close enough. Um, so my question is, you know, <laughs> the, the, there's a line about um, how strengthening the peroneals is important because that reduced eversion strength is associated with recurrent injury and ankle instability. Um, but I mean, as we know, the role of the peroneals in gait isn't to evert the foot. So can you kind of like close the gap between why you would do resisted eversion and open chain if your goal is to get them back to weight bearing? Yeah.
1: So maybe initially we don't do anything, everything, function, function, function. That is the goal. We want to get there. But without giving them too much of uh, stress to the area, what is the success? Maybe just moving up in air, they couldn't move before, but now they can move. That is success to me. But that is just small stepping stone before going to more close chain weight-bearing activities. So not necessarily that exercise itself, you know, it's going to be help their function right away. No, actually I'm investing for the future.
0: Yeah, I would say I, I definitely use four-way ankle, ABCs, towel scrunches, all of those things, right, that are on Google are in this article. And some of it I use mirrored with their other foot. So they're looking at what their non-injured foot is doing and utilizing that as kind of their goal to get to, knowing that it's probably not going to be perfect and they may it may take them a while. But giving them that education at home that this is safe, it's giving them success, And it's something that they can do without my guidance (laughs) and not really put themselves at quote unquote risk. Um, Same thing with even just single leg balance. We know that most people don't sprain their ankles just statically standing. Right. But still getting that loading input back into their system, potentially right after they do a four way ankle. Um, I may utilize that in sequence in that way to say, Hey, it activates. And now when they go into weight bearing, they're going to feel that, but it's going to work differently because it's in closed chain versus open chain. So I'm still going to use the exercises and I'm going to use them as a guide again from a success standpoint and helping build what they can do at home and say, look, you can do 500 sets of ABCs. Great. It's going to help. Your motion It might not help your closed chain motion, but it's going to help your open chain motion. And if you've normalized your open chain motion, that's probably going to help me as the practitioner get your closed chain motion back. Because I bet if we dug deep on the stat of 40 to 50%, we're probably going to see that those individuals lack closed chain dorsiflexion and or first MTP extension. Because that's probably negated in this component i so, know you're gonna play doubles after. Yeah,
2: so let's go! Let's go. Yeah, I'm ready yeah, for this. I have to. <laughs> so uh, you know, <laughs> grade one, light ankle sprain. Um, say you day one, you give them pivots, triplane. Maybe they don't go through full inversion, full opposite side rotation. You know, lower extremity reaches, but they do pretty darn well. Do you still give them four-way ankle Theraband, even if they're successful in closed chain at a higher level? It's
0: a good question. It's a really good question. I would say more times than not, yes. Because I want to ensure that that muscle still has the ability to fire both concentrically and eccentrically and then econcentrically, right? Because that's what it's going to do in your pivots is it's going to fire both, It's going to fire to provide stability. So I want to make sure that it has the ability to concentrically fire and eccentrically slow down, which again, we know in the evidence and it talks about it in this article as well. And then it's resounding that eccentrics is crucial for the ability to return to task, not sport task, right? And task could be walking. So I will still give that to them as a success and say, do this in combination and find the sequencing that works best for you because you might need to do the, the pivot before you can do the TheraBand and then go back to the pivot, which would be an interesting from a proprioceptive standpoint and might discuss mobility versus stability, which we're going to record later. Uh, don't know when that one's going to release, but that one's going to record later. So, I mean, that's where my brain goes is I'm going to give them that combination of quote unquote non-functional paired with functional because, again, it's my end goal. And knowing that I don't want to lose the ability for that muscle to fire. And yes, I know where your head's going. You're going to probably say, but the muscles are reactors, not actors. So I'm going to let K two answer before I give you another chance to play devil's advocate.
1: (laughs) I like it. Uh, My point is pretty similar to dance. Uh, I may provide that exercise to see if they can do it. Kind of checklist. Not necessarily, you know, they absolutely... Um, that is uh, important for this phase, but I don't want to miss anything. Many cases, I jump on to further progression, then getting better, seems to be getting better, getting better, now plateauing, plateauing, plateauing. What's going on? Then when you're stepping back to see even just uh, isolated uh, muscle-firing stuff, then I find some deficit. Then sometimes just working on that, almost like turn on the switch, on the plug, Hey, just turning on, doing this, can you actually do it? Light bulb goes off or not? If it's not going off, many cases in function or closed chain, sometimes they don't really fire well. That is my kind of experience observation. So I'm gonna make sure kind of checklist, kind of killing the checklist one at a time. So especially beginning phase. We don't need to do too much to do that, but making sure we are not missing anything to start with. That kind of mindset I have. Then I may utilize that exercise. I forward. actually really love that idea of the checklist because it's not going to hurt them, right?
0: <clears throat> but if it means that it's going to reduce the probability down the road that they're going to not have a similar plateau, that they're not going to plateau, there's 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 no harm in prescribing that. I'm not going to spend time and energy outside the first day in my clinic Cause I don't think that that's justifiable from a skilled standpoint. And I want to maximize their time in my clinic with me and my thought process. And I'm going to spend time on probably the biggest limitation, which is most likely going to be range of motion. If we're talking about a grade one, and I want to make sure that they're getting that closed chain dorsiflexion back so that they can engage their entire posterior chain and their hip to provide, to provide that dynamic stability that they're going to need moving forward.
1: And if that exercise is absolutely easy, they totally own it. Yes, quickly I move on to crocheting. Yeah. Yes.
2: Somebody smarter than me, who's also a guest on this podcast, sometimes said a reason for doing an exercise or anything you do should never be somebody smarter than me told me to do this exercise or intervention. Both <laughs> of you guys are much smarter than me, and I will use it as a reason for doing four way <laughs> ankle therapy.
0: <laughs> but I think it. But again, if we if we go back and we look at the review article that you know, that we that we're talking about. Some, I agree with K2 and I'm guilty of it and I'm sure I'm guilty of it where I, maybe I started too conservative, but then I got too aggressive and I missed something in the middle or they were able to be successful with the closed chain pivot. And so I didn't even look at open chain and then I missed something and it might've been as simple as yes, they are lacking comparable strength to the contralateral side which down the road may lead to a compensation that takes me a long time to figure out because of a, a dynamic weakness and that dynamic weakness could be that they can't eccentrically control their heel. And I need to go back and need to work on that in open chain versus if they've been doing that from the beginning all along on their own and doing it until the cows come home because they're sitting there watching sports center. Great. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not going to hurt me. And it, If it helps them even 3%, I'm going to say, you know what, again, going back to K2 success standpoint, I'm going to let them do it again. I I still think there's a time and a place for every exercise. It's what are you doing from a progression standpoint? And I loved what K2 said about trying to reduce the probability of them having a plateau and then having to go back and play a sleuth to figure out where is the, where, where's the deficit in them that's leading to that plateau. Right.
1: Dan, I greatly appreciate you show your vulnerability and the sincerity. And truth is, I was there too. You know, just right out of PT school, what I learned was uh, safety the priority. Safety, safety, safety. So I take that maybe too conservatively too. But that time, my clients didn't progress as they should. Then realized, oh yeah, I was missing out all the opportunities to load the tissue but I didn't know how much is too much. So sometimes I create more symptom exacerbation than more than I wanted. But almost like kind of pendulum, but now my point is going back to my first statement. Almost this um, research paper, also um, algorithm, help us show what is out there. Also like uh, we don't want to go too extreme, trying to find happy medium. But those who I once was there, didn't have much clinical experience, kind of guide you to get to close to nearby that sweet spot of the treatment, I feel like.
0: Yeah, I really like that, K2. Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to ask one more question, then we're going to kind of wrap it up. So on the far right-hand side of the algorithm, it talks about, which I think is the green box, it talks about they have had they have normal range of motion, and now we can progress to advanced strengthening, progressing neuromuscular and proprioceptive training, and then if they don't have any impairments on functional performance tests, return to quote-unquote sports-specific activities. So I want to highlight the top box, which is normal range of motion, and how many times we've heard our mentor, Brett Fisher, say he has athletes that come in to see him who have limited dorsiflexion, closed-chain dorsiflexion, compared to their contralateral limb. And I think that that's arguably the most important range of motion component we have to look at that's probably gonna lead to decreased incidence and increase our success rate rehabbing individuals post ankle sprain. I want your guys' thoughts on that as well.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm looking at closed-trained dorsiflexion for probably too many of the patients that I treat. plantar fasciitis, hip pain, low back pain, rotator cuff issues, cervicalgia. Uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a great test and a lot of people are asymmetrical and limited. Um, and we just know going up the chain what kind of havoc that can, that can wreak, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, I feel like even like those uh, who themselves call themselves like healthy individual or healthy athlete they may have few um, hidden um, range of motion deficits. And that may or may not interfere their function, but maybe they're not fully utilizing their potential. At the same time, that may lead into the future injury, just like uh, Dan was talking about. Uh, So going back, going to the rehabilitation, yes, if they don't have range of motion, we have to limit ourselves. Well, again, we have to make a clinical decision making that time. Maybe that we can create the environment slash exercise prescription, maybe utilizing the available range of motion, then we can do so much so that we don't really have to limit ourselves, but we better be, have some plans to improve the range of motion. So as range of motion improves, then we have more, uh, a better, um, more opportunity to load that joint tissue surrounding it too. So as range of motion improves, our exercise should improve. So it's not going to be black and white, but definitely that's a great uh, factor. Yeah, to Yeah.
0: I think that this article highlights specifically what... Brett has instilled in us and what we teach our internal sports medicine uh, class participants that if they don't have normal range of motion, you shouldn't be progressing to certain movements. That doesn't mean you can't be working within what's already successful, but you're not going to go to return to play criteria until they have normal range of motion. That's just got to become a clinical staple, both open and closed chain, full range of motion com- compared to the contralateral side. And I would argue within 5% deficit, not 10. I would I would like to see us mini- to, to make that gap even more narrow because it's going to increase the probability that they're going to have success progressing through their task-specific uh, exercises.
2: Through the full kinetic chain.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Starting from the ground up, especially if we're talking about, you know, most athletes in this document, you know, football, soccer players, and that's the, the highest prevalence of injury, right? Like their feet are on the ground all the time. So we need to make sure that they have normal range motion to ensure that everything up the chain is going to give them the greatest ability to support that ankle moving forward.
2: Yes, I do just want to highlight this, though, is, you know, that very bottom box says begin sports specific exercise. And I do think that K2, you know, brought up a, a very good point that we need to keep in mind is we can do sports specific exercise from day one, uh, half kneel, tall kneel. We shouldn't be waiting until they have full range of motion to do anything related to their sports, but working within their available range um, just so you're not too so far behind, you know.
0: Right. I think that's a great component. You can go away from the injured body part and still keep that person in shape. You know, Just to highlight something that I saw at the Sports Institute last summer, they were working with a professional soccer player who had a knee injury, but they were still trying to keep this individual's cardiovascular endurance up. So they had this person laying on their back, pulling a sled with their – a weighted sled with their arms to challenge their cardiovascular system in a way that probably would make the vast majority of us have a vomit reflex (laughs) because it was so hard. But they integrated that – to challenge this individual to work on their cardiovascular health, but ensure that their knee was properly taken care of. Um, now, you can argue that's not very, it's not sports specific in any way, shape or form, but it's still sports specific to keep their cardiovascular shape up, knowing that when you work their upper extremity, it's going to challenge their heart at a greater level, right? So, uh, gentlemen, I thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, and, and having a discussion on this again, for our listeners, I will post the link in our description with this article that we discussed. And if you guys have any additional things that you find or want to discuss or share with us, uh, I welcome that. I do want to give a shout out to Danielle S who emailed us about episode 66 and how that really resonated with her. And I look forward to collaborating with her on a future podcast, but just want to give her a quick shout out as always. If you guys have questions, comments, feedback, additional things that you want to hear us discuss, please do not hesitate to reach out at therapistsinemotion at spoonerpt.com. Thanks and have a great day.
1: Thank you for listening. Please
0: hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.